At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, hello and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon, and with me today is Tony O'Driscoll. Tony, thanks for being with us. Great to be here, Earl. Yeah, listeners, you are in for a treat here. You know, I do my due diligence and uh, try to listen to the things that my guests have been on before to to get a, a feel for the guest. And, and Tony has got a lot of, of knowledge to share with us here today. But what I want to know what I, I'm a professional at this, right? What I want you to know about Tony is that he is a Duke University's, and forgive me if I get this wrong, uh, Fuqua School of Business professor and a research fellow at Duke Corporate Education. He was a founding member of IBM Global Services Strategy and Change Consulting Practice, where he consulted at highest level with business executives on creating competitive advantage in increasingly complex environments. Tony has authored articles in Harvard Business Review, The Financial Times, Strategy in Business, and Dialogue. And the book that we're going to talk about uh, quite a bit today, kind of as a backdrop for a lot of our conversation here, is Everyday Superhero, How You Can Inspire Everyone and Create Real Change at Work. And I think that's just such a great uh, theme for everything we've been going through over the past few years. Uh, but Tony, with all that background, all that knowledge, all that experience, I'm really excited to hear how you, uh, how you answer the first question I start off all of my guests with. When you hear the phrase responsible leadership, what does that mean to you? Thanks so much, Earl. When, when I saw the name of your podcast, I, I was hoping we'd get into this. Uh, I think about responsible as a little bit of a play on words. You know, when we talk about leadership, uh, I believe there's one and only one requirement for leadership to exist, and that's followership. That there, you know, you, you're not a leader unless somebody is following you. 
And normally, if you're going to set up the right context for leadership, you want to give people autonomy in return for responsibility. If I'm going to give you the autonomy to do something, uh, I'm going to give you the responsibility to get it done. And that, that kind of, you pick up one side of the stick, you pick up the other side. And I feel that if you create an environment of aspiration, where there's a group that has a shared aspiration, where people are aligned around that aspiration, right, knowing where, where, where it is they want to go collectively, uh, they're provided the autonomy that they need to, to do the work at the edge and the accountability and responsibility to get that work done. Then you have what I call responsible leadership and a responsible organization. And here, I don't mean responsible like I'm responsible to do something. I mean response-able, meaning the organization is able to respond far more agilely than it has in the past because the decision-making is pushed to the point where the most expertise is and where the most uncertainty is. And because people feel they have the accountability and the autonomy to act, the organization operates in a far more uh, agile way and can sense and respond far more quickly. So to me, uh, autonomy and responsibility at the individual level yield responsible organizations, organizations that can respond, right, that are able to respond far more quickly. And in these increasingly uncertain times, I feel that responsible organizations and responsible leadership is more important than ever. Mm. I, I love that. You, you said a lot there that I, I really love, like being a, a veteran uh, of the Marine Corps, that, that idea of kind of decentralized command, uh, being able to to empower people to make decisions at the lowest possible level really rings true. But one thing I really want to kind of highlight uh, again here, and I hope my listeners have picked up on this. So I went maybe 225 interviews without having a single person uh, really make that response able, able to respond uh, distinction. And honestly, I'd never really thought about it until uh, my first guest uh, a few episodes ago. And I'm, I'm trying to remember who it was that brought it up first. Uh, but since then, you know, uh, I've had a lot of people, I've pro- you're probably the fourth person who's kind of made that distinction with responsible, not just meaning, uh, you know, responsibility, how we normally view it, but able to respond. And I'm kind of curious for you, like, why, why was that a piece that you really wanted to highlight there in that response, that, that ability to respond? Well, there's a couple of things there. Um, I'm going to go back to 1924, Mary Parker Follett. Uh, she has this quote that just is almost indelibly imprinted into my mind, Earl. She says, leadership is not defined by the exercise of power but by the capacity to increase the sense of power among those led. And I, I suppose that gets you know mushed into the term empowerment, but I think it's important to unpack those words, right? So it's not, it's not, it's not about exercising power over, but capa- increasing the capacity of the sense of power in others. And, and, and for me, I suppose the colloquialism is none of us is as smart as all of us, right? And so if you think about organizations as decision factories, uh, you know, where, where, you know, under a whole bunch of uncertainty, more and more and more and more decisions that are increasing, increasingly complex and absent all the data are, inc- are, are coming. And, and what happens there is that those decisions tend to get pushed through the edge of the organization and up to the top. And what's happening is that those at the top, as, as Peter Drucker likes to say, bottlenecks are at the top of a bottle, 
just don't have the capacity individually to deal with all of those decisions. So, so what we're seeing is that, you know, if you're, if you're going to try to lead from the edge and you're going to try and give people responsibility at the edge where they understand the context, have, can read the weak signals and can respond in a heartbeat, this, this model of having everything flow into the organization and up to the top is breaking down. And we're seeing that just through, you know, how, how slowly organizations are responding. So for me, I think that a responsible organization is one that unlocks a superpower. And this, this relates back to my book, Everyday Superhero, is I think every organization has a huge untapped reservoir of energy. And that energy is called discretionary effort. Discretionary effort is what you will do because you're compelled to, not because you're commanded to. It's stuff you will do because you want to, not because you're told to. Essentially, we all have intrinsic motivation. It could be fueled by our curiosity, by our upbringing, whatever it is. Our motivation, our love of country. Um, and when you unlock that discretionary effort, it, it, it's like an unstoppable force because it has meaning. It's imbued with meaning and, 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 and people will run through a brick wall for meaning. Uh, so what I believe is in order to have a responsible organization and responsible leadership, the key is to empower people by unlocking their discretionary effort and letting them, right, take the autonomy and the responsibility at the point where they are most qualified to make the call and move forward from there. That way you have a, a leadership system. This is another concept I have. A leadership system that can sense and respond in a far more agile way to what we have had in the past. Oftentimes, we tend to think about leadership as a noun and not a verb. It's a person in a position. And it, with your background, Earl, you know, in, in a military hierarchy, that tends to be the way we think about things. But I've worked a lot with the military, and I've had the great pleasure of even uh, doing a couple of interviews with General Marty Dempsey. And, 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 and when he's talking about a hierarchy fighting a terrorist network, you have to fundamentally reimagine the, the chain of command, if you will, because you're dealing with a very different adversary. And that adversary that operates like a network is going to require a similar response from the largest organization on the planet, which is the U.S. military. And so he wrote that book, Radical Inclusion, uh, to really talk about how do we have to rethink some of the, some of the things about how we make decisions uh, in, in the military in order to be able to respond to this new adversary. So I think all of that comes together to say we need to empower our people to make decisions that they are fully equipped to make and and hold them accountable for doing so so that the organization as, a, as an entity can uh, survive and thrive in increasingly complex times. Mm. I love that. And thank you for kind of, you know, adding uh, your military leadership experience there, working with folks uh, into the conversation. Because one of the, my goals of this podcast, talking to folks primarily in the private sector, is to kind of shine a light on some of those, uh, I call it the, the Hollywood version of what military leadership really is. Um, you know, when they, they really just depict it as the, the yelling, screaming, spitting, slobbering and, and people running around and just doing whatever is said, whenever it's said, however it's said, and not questioning anything. Because, you know, the reality is far different from that. Does that happen? Absolutely. But that happens in a very specific environment, in a very specific uh, time in somebody's career. And it has a very specific purpose behind it. 
once you get out of those environments, it is a lot more of that that decentralized decision making piece. And kind of adding on to the the quote you had there, this is one uh, that I really love. Going back uh, to to the 13th Commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, Johnny Lejeune, uh, his definition of leadership, and I think it fits kind of nicely in there. Is, is the sum of those qualities of intellect, human understanding, and moral character that enable a person to inspire and to control a group of people successfully. And I always like to point out it's inspire and control, not command and control. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah, no, I, I really love, you know, everything you just said there because it is, it is so true, right? We're in a fast paced, very, uh, very fluid environment. Uh, if anybody's been paying attention using the military references there to the global war on terror, you know, we started out with the Taliban and Al Qaeda, and we probably had a dozen or more organizations have popped up with very similar intent, but a lot of different operating structures behind them, which has changed how we had to operate and the environments we had to operate in. And that's not very unlike the private sector, is it? No, not at all. I mean, I think it's 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 probably overused at this point in time, and certainly if you're in the military, it's 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 been around a long time. But VUCA, right? Volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. Um, right. I I think from from my perspective, I I think about it on two two vectors, right? One vector is complexity. So so. The more connected we become, the more complex the more complex things are, right? So we're, we're, we're living in an era of compounding complexity. And the reason for that is that we have successive iterations of technology layering on top of each other. You know, we had the telegraph system and the electrical system and then the phone system and then the mobile phone system, right? And the internet and wireless and Wi-Fi. And, and so essentially the world has essentially got this electronic exoskeleton. It's blanketed in this electronic exoskeleton where... Bits are flying around the world at the at the speed of light. They could represent dollars. They could re- represent terrorist chatter. They could represent an influencer's latest relationship. Whatever it is, but essentially we have this digital surround, you know, that that, that is moving. At, that's always on and moving at the speed of light. So that's compounding complexity because the more connected things are, the more difficult it is to see the unanticipated second, third, and fourth order effects that could emerge from any action within that environment. Uh, so that's compounding complexity. The second is. Um, it's not even uh, speeding up. So a lot of people say, oh, things are speeding up. What I believe is things are actually, the rate of change is changing. If you think about physics, right, distance over time is velocity. That's, that's sometimes we call it speed, but in physics we call that velocity. And velocity over time, the second derivative of, of distance, is acceleration. Now the third derivative, so velocity over time or distance over time squared, is jerk. It's called jerk. And so I believe that essentially technology is jerking humanity around. It's moving at a third degree rate of change. You see, it's the rate of change that's changed. It's not just that things are speeding up. That would be acceleration. But literally things are jerking us around because we'll see discontinuities. We'll see breaks and and we don't know how how to actually deal with that. So if you take compounding complexity and jerk, the jerkiness of technology, it's creating this increasingly volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, if you want to call it that, but, but this really, really difficult uh, landscape to navigate. In, in the old world, I, I teach strategy at Duke. In the old world, we talk about a strategic landscape like terrain, like you might in the military. You know, let's survey the terrain and find the highest point and those kind of things. 
And, and what we assumed was that the terrain was firm. We were on terra firma, right? Literally. <laughs> Whereas right. today, I almost feel like it's the Navy. You're out at sea. Uh, and, and it might be a perfectly calm day and all of a sudden a squall comes up and, and one minute you're at the top of you're at the top of a wave and the other you're down in the in, in the dark surrounded by waves. And that that that's more what the strategic landscape seems like today. It's it's not firm where you say, OK, there's a hill, take the hill from that point. We can figure out what to do because we'll have the best vantage point. It's more like the, the, the terrain that we're operating on is, is quite changeable and unpredictable. And so, and so you have to be, you have to have a, you, you have to be, you have to have a perpetual state of readiness for the unexpected, right? Uh, and, and so I call that the instant enterprise. And by enterprise, I don't just mean company, right? The instant organization, if you want to call it that. How do you cultivate a perpetual state of readiness for the unexpected in your organization? Um, and I, I believe, going again, going back to that is you need a leadership system all the way through that has a clear vision, right? And is inspired about that vision that is aligned around that and finds meaning in it individually. Each person can find their own meaning in that aspiration. It's a shared aspiration. The autonomy of those people to unlock their discretionary effort to go after whatever part of that aspiration they believe they can contribute the most to, right? And the accountability and responsibility to do that on behalf of the team. You put those four together, what you have is an instant enterprise. You have a leadership system that's almost like a nervous system that can sense and respond and, and move forward. Now, the moving forward is a function of true north. It's a function of what is our shared aspiration and are we moving closer in the direction of that shared aspiration. Doesn't necessarily mean that we will be pointing true north all the time. Right. As we know, if we're, if we're in a, if we're in a plane flying from New York to L.A., the nose of that plane is not pointed at L.A. more than 10 percent of the time. You have to take into account the conditions and the weather and changing altitude and avoiding a storm and so on and so forth. But right. but but the end goal is clear and where we want to get to is clear. We might have to navigate around in order to get there. Um, and, and so how we build a leadership system that that unlocks discretionary effort that is has aspiration, alignment, autonomy, and accountability. That, to me, is the way that you set up an operating system, a leadership operating system, to succeed in an increasingly VUCA world. Mm. No, I, and again, uh, I love everything that you just said there, and my, my listeners are probably uh, kind of guessing some of the things I'm getting ready to say next, because it's been a popular theme uh, recently. But, you know, you, you started off with talking about change and uh, – there, there's a great quote that I think sums up exactly what you're saying, um, and, and it goes unattributed. I wish somebody would claim it. Um, I'm about to claim it myself if nobody steps forward. Uh, but it says, change is changing faster than change has ever changed before. Oh, I uh, love it. Yeah, I mean, because I think that just sums it up perfectly because what you just said, it's true. And add in those layers of complexity, and and, and I like your discretionary effort uh, piece there, but, uh, you know, the the other place that I like to focus on, because you mentioned it earlier on, is cognitive diversity. Uh, you know, you got James Sirwicki's Wisdom of the Crowds. You've got uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, you've got Scott Page's uh, The Difference, all really talking about using what, what you're talking about here as well, that cognitive diversity, having people in an organization that not only can think and see a problem and see see the complexity of the problems, uh, 
but they can identify those and they have an idea that is, is maybe just a little bit different than the person next to them, but you've created the environment as you keep talking about where not only are those people able to see the problem, they're able to speak up, they're able to say, Hey, I see uh, using the Titanic as, as reference. I see the iceberg. Uh, here's what I, th- but also adding that here's what I think we should do to avoid it and having people actually listen to them and take their input uh, into the decision-making process and not just outright dismiss, dismiss them because, well, no, hey, you were just hired yesterday. You don't have any value to the end of the organization. That, yeah. that style of thinking is just so antiquated, right? Absolutely. So, so, so you've hit on another area that's, that's an area of research of mine. So, so stop me if I, if I go too far here, but into, into the compounding complexity axis that I was talking about, um, complexity theory then becomes quite important, right? Um, and, and so there, to me, there's two kinds of learning in any organization. There's productive learning, which is te- teaching people how to do things we know how to do. And then there's generative learning, which is figuring out the answer to things we have not we do not know how to do. Okay. So in productive learning, if we know how to build a bridge, we will teach people the laws of bridge building and the laws of physics and stress and tense and so on and so forth. And the goal there is to comply to the rules. The goal there is to comply to the the physical rule, right? Or axiom that is there. Gravity is 9.8 meters per second. And that's that that's bound by kind of uh, science, if you will. Um, and, and, and to a certain extent, if you want to think about uh, the military, there's a fair amount of rules that we want to comply to for obvious reasons, right? Uh, and, and therefore, the, the kind of the hierarchy and the, and, and the command and control system works really well in that context, in a world where we know and can predict what the outcome will be, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So, so we, we're clear on what the outcome is, and we're clear on which buttons to push or which levers to pull in order to get that outcome. Now, in a world where the sea, where we've moved from a strategic terrain that's firm to much more of a, a sea squall where we're unsure about what has to happen, then none of us knows what the outcome will be. And therefore, diversity of perspective becomes absolutely critical. And it doesn't it doesn't correlate to age. It doesn't correlate to any of those prior experiences. In fact, prior experience could be a hindrance because what happens in our brain psychologically, right? or, or physio- physiologically, if you will, is when we're put into a position of fear, biologically, uh, the blood flows from our prefrontal cortex down into our heart and into our legs so that we can run, you know, because <laughs> back in the back in the day, we were running away from a predator. Right. Um, and so what happens is literally we go limbic, uh, meaning that we, we tend to execute routines that have worked in the past. We're, we're preconditioned biologically to fall back into routines that worked in the past, uh, because we don't, we, we get rid of our executive function. We get rid of our kind of contemplative figuring things out type function. So, so the irony and the most difficult thing I think for us as a as a species and as a leadership as a leadership system is to be able to be, bring the broadest diversity of perspective to bear on a problem we haven't solved yet, and be willing to listen uh, to what everybody has to say because it it might be the most oblique or originally non intuitive progression path that could lead us out of the mess that we're in. Uh, in my book, I actually have a whole section on that where the person who, who saves the day is, is actually a character called Noob, uh, N-E-U-B. And, and he's brand new. He's an intern. And there's, there's, there's actually a real story behind that that comes from actually 
uh, well, it's Russ Acoff, not Dan Kahneman, but but essentially it's it's the story of a, of an intern, and they're trying to figure out the problem of slow elevators. And this intern comes from NYU, and all the engineers are saying, "Hey, we can make the elevators go faster, or we could create a system where it doesn't go all the way up, and all of this." And 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 the intern said, "Well, what's the problem?" Said, well, people are complaining because the elevators are taking too long. So, well, maybe it's because they're bored. So, for fifty dollars, you put up a mirror in the elevator lobby, and the problem goes away. And and so there you had kind of a you know a lot of people who had a lot of prior experience with elevators and with engines and with computer new computer science, and they're all trying to solve the problem through an engineering lens. And this kid essentially had a, had a human lens and kind of said, well, wait a minute, if the problem is that people are bored, give them something to stop them being bored, and that'll solve the problem. Uh, and that was a very unique and very effective solution, very cost effective solution that made the problem go away uh, in a very very short period of time. So absolutely, I think broadening the aperture, welcoming in diversity of perspective, finding a way forward, um, and not dismissing what might originally seem like completely harebrained ideas is the best way to engender what I call generative learning, learning together and figuring things out. So moving from a find it out world, find the answer, who knows the answer, go get the person who has the answer, to a figure it out world, what do we do next when we don't know what to do? is a very different kind of learning system. And that learning system is collaborative and generative. You come up with new concepts that you must then test and learn your way through. Mm, I love it. I love that story. That is a great story uh, and highlights just how powerful and easy these concepts uh, are and and can be. Um, But I think that's a great uh, segue into, let's go into a break, uh, let some commercials run here, pay some bills, and then we come back on the other side. Uh, let's really focus on everyday superhero here. How's that sound? Sounds good, Earl. All right, folks. We're going to let those commercials run, and we'll be right back on the other side with Tony O'Driscoll. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, listeners, welcome back to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Again, I am here with Tony O'Driscoll, uh, author of Everyday Superhero, How You Can Inspire Everyone and Create Real Change at Work. And the first half of the segment there, we did a lot of, you know, really, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed kind of the deep dive into leadership and, and some of the psychology pieces and, and, and those sorts of things there. Uh, but here on this side of it, I want to kind of tie that end of the book because uh, listeners, um, you know, I, I love to bring you all great books with a lot of great content and, you know, I love unique things, right? And so uh, the cover art for this book, fantastic. But the first thing you're going to notice as soon as you kind of open it up and, and start looking at it is it's not your stereotypical kind of uh, leadership change management uh, type of book you kind of put this thing together as, as a graphic novel, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Talk about, talk about, uh, 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 
taking a new approach in generative learning. The the yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I and I love it because you're you're absolutely right. Like that was the first thing. Like when I I saw the the inside and saw some of the graphics and things in there, I was really sucked in. I'm like, okay, this is this is different, right? This is not something I've ever seen before. I don't know if anybody has ever taken this approach before. I, I want to say no. I've read a lot of different books. I've not seen it, but it really sucked me in. Like I wanted to to read the story of of May B, which again you kind of referenced in the uh, beginning, noob. Um, I love how you took those names uh, and those words and made them into names. So that's a nice, innovative approach as well. But what what sparked the idea to do the book this way? Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. So so I for for the last couple of years, I uh, the Project Management Institute had asked me to take a look at a problem that they were dealing with. Um, and the problem is that organizations fail to make the changes required to implement their strategies 70 to 80% of the time, right? So they'll mm -hmm. spend a ton of money with strategy firms to come in and identify a new strategy. Uh, they'll articulate what that strategy is, make sure that it secures them a position of advantage, you know, do the competitive analysis, the whole nine yards. Uh, and then the strategy is written, right? And, and then it has to get executed. And, and, and what happens is execute means to things in the English language to do or to kill. And unfortunately, in this case, you know, 20 to 30% of the time, it means to do, but 70% of the time, it means to kill that the, the strategy, the intended strategy, the strategy that the executives want that was developed in conjunction with high power consultants does not see the light of day does not meet, uh, you know, does not hold up to what happens on the ground. Right. I'm sure you're familiar with this from your from your own military experience. So the problem is, why is it that organizations fail to make the changes required to implement their strategy 78 percent of the time? So they asked me to to kind of review the literature and understand what 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 is the root cause of this? And and the root cause I found to be something we call the tyranny of the tangible. The tyranny of the tangible is that we tend to want to work on, for driving change in organizations, we want to work on the tangible levers of things we can see. We're going to implement a new structure. We're going to bring in a new system. We're going to implement a new process. And by doing those things, the tangible things of structure, system, and process, we will have changed. Now, the challenge with that is that most organizations are putting the tangible cart before the emotional horse. The thing about people is, People don't resist change. We're around as a species because we don't resist change. We actually figure out how to stay alive. And we've done that collaboratively through, through generative learning, as I've taught to you before, uh, for millennia. We resist being changed. We, re we resist being told what to do absent any context. That's what we resist. So if we don't think about the emotional levers of experience, belief, and behavior, the human side of change, be, and we don't put that horse out in front of the structure systems and processes, we essentially have the polarity wrong. And I call that the tyranny of the tangible. So what we need is a people-centered transformation framework, one that acknowledges that people need to be engaged in the change. And if you do that, and you do that in a generative learning fashion like we just talked about previously and involve people, then you'll unlock the discretionary effort and the change You'll be able to change in perpetuity because basically you will have the people with you. Whereas if you go for the structure process and, and technology, you essentially are trying to force 
people to conform to that. Um, and at, at best there, you'll get malicious compliance, but you won't get discretionary effort. So the book essentially um, is a, was a little, well, the original research was kind of hard-nosed looking at what are the 10 elements that would drive a people-centered transformation framework? What does the research say about these elements? And most importantly, what are the shifts that leadership would need to make in order to activate each of these elements to create a culture of aspirational alignment, autonomy, and accountability? So it was very nerdy. You know, kind of quite academic, hundreds of references, you know, all of that. Basically a big survey of the literature to try to figure out what we need to do to activate a people-centered transformation system, right? Leadership system. Mm-hmm. And and the the um, Martina O'Sullivan, who was the editor, said, you know, this is the whole this is a book about people-centered transformation. You should really think about making it into a graphic novel. And I said, A graphic what? And she said, <laughs> you know, a graphic novel. <laughs> and I said, You mean a cartoon? And so, so during COVID, I, I got to collaborate with one of my very best friends, Gary Zamchik, who, who does a lot of graphics for my, for my presentations. And we, we essentially co-created this book. I'd done the research in the back of the book. You know, um, there's all the research that talks about each of these shifts. But in the story, you see maybe and her, and her merry band of, of misfits, if you will, kind of navigating. In the first half of the book, they're having to you know, conform to the MERB, the Muck Immutable Rule Book. And they find that that doesn't work. So then they kind of go out on their own and go into more of a generative learning leadership system model and end up saving the world. Because every story, you have to end up saving the world, right? Um, so <laughs> right. A really a hero's journey. Yeah, exactly. And so I had to learn a lot about Joseph Campbell and what, you know, what, are, the, what are the kind of key steps on the journey and uh, you know, the, the, the journey that the protagonist may be goes through and she's got her sidekick practical. Every, every name does have, a, does have an actual double entendre, if you will. Um, and I must say, you know, we had a lot of fun working together on this book. Gary's very creative, very graphical. I, I brought a lot of the research to it. But what came out here is is uh, something that neither of us could have done ourselves. And I think it um, I think it's it's unique and it's different, and it, it presents the information. The idea was you could read it in about an hour, an hour and a half, uh, and then if you wanted to dig deeper, you could go into the back and kind of see, you know, what's the research that this is built on. So that's the genesis of where the book came from. Well, and I think that's where it really strikes gold is that balance uh, that you talked about there. And again, going back to the cognitive diversity piece, uh, because I think what what the two of you did, like you, you mentioned, you've got all the research in the back and it's a lot of, you know, great research from what I've been able to uh, to see so far. Um, but, you know, the the story really seems to do a good job of of giving that graphical representation that I think most people, whether they, they can understand and fully comprehend the research piece, they're going to get it pretty easy through the graphical representation. So I think you've, you've done a really good job of striking that chord uh, between kind of, of both camps, if you will, because me, I'm more of, of an auditory learner. Um, I'm not a big fan of, of just sitting there and reading and just, you know, doing all that, uh, which is why I lean towards audible uh, for most of my books. Um, but even with that graphics, uh, visual is kind of like my secondary nature. And so when I was looking through this and looking at the graphics and you're hundred percent, right. Uh, Gary Zamchik does a great job with, with the illustrations and, and breaking down these concepts, uh, into nice digestible bites. Uh, but I want to focus on that a second, cause you'd mentioned, uh, the, the MERB, the, the muck immutable rule book. Um, and, and I agree with you. I like that, that shift uh, to kind of that, uh, I think the words you use are middle out network uh, leadership system. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, so let's go ahead and kind of talk about that a little bit as they go through the journey, they make this shift on their own, uh, which I love that concept as well, because they didn't ask for permission to change the system. They just kind of set out and did it. Right. That's right. That's yeah. right. There, there is, there is one moment. It's kind of like the, you know, the Joseph Candle, Campbell, Darth Vader, Luke, you know, Luke moment where, where May basically says, you know, um, organizations are not, this is a Charles Handyism organizations are nothing without people. The people are going to walk if you don't let us try this. And, 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 and chief muck, the CEO in this instance recognizes that she really does have the people and that, and, and that organizations are nothing without people. So he, he reluctantly kind of says, okay, try it, but I'll be watching you. But once, once, once that's unlocked, then what we see is the leadership system, the more, the, the more, the more kind of networked, leadership system working from the middle out because may is in this story is a middle manager she works from the middle out and i think that's important um a lot of people tend to think that middle management you know they're dinosaurs if you can just get rid of the permafrost layer in the middle of the organization everything would be better Uh, i i couldn't i couldn't disagree more i actually believe that those who sit in the middle are the most important leaders i believe they're dynamos not dinosaurs and that's because they sit between aspiration and alignment they sit between autonomy and accountability in terms of kind of the the culture of the firm but they sit between strategy and results if somebody devises a strategy you know in the mahogany office and it's not hitting the ground the way it should the center leader the middle manager i like to call them center leader is the one who knows that sooner than anyone else so then they can inform direction back up to strategy and they can guide activity back down to results to kind of more tightly couple strategy and results Secondly, and even more importantly, they sit between culture and people. They know whether or not a change will will fit with the culture or won't, and how to motivate change for the culture to change. And at the end of the day, it's about people. And if they know their people, they, they, they know how to influence their behavior, largely through their own behavior. So I really see the center leader as kind of uh, propelling the organization forward because they sit between strategy, results, culture, and people. So I believe they're the dynamo that can unlock the discretionary effort that can allow the organization to change in perpetuity. Hmm. You know, I'll, yeah, I'll agree with that. And and in my experience is the one thing that I've noticed, and I'm kind of curious if you notice the same thing. Uh, You know, obviously you've got some folks who are still kind of climbing up the ladder, but, you know, folks who have been kind of in middle management for a decent period of time, uh, they, they, they have this unique gift because they, they know a little bit something about themselves. They know what their limitations are. They found the spot in the organization where they are happy, usually because of what you just said. They, they don't have all of the responsibilities of maybe the, the C-suite, uh, but they're not, you know, kind of still doing, quote unquote, the grunt work. Uh, but they like being kind of that middle person. They found a place where they are happy, where they know that their skills and abilities can can be best used. And they're not really worried so much about usually moving up the ladder because they are happy and they're willing to be kind of more of that voice of the people, uh, if you will, to higher ups. But they're also realize that their job is is there uh, and, and can be in place. So they're not going to be too crazy, uh, unless the situation warrants. So they're going to like really be the, um, um, disagree, but commit types that are going to voice their uh, opinions, 
but they're going to like commit to the process that's agreed upon to make sure that it is a uh, is a unified voice. They kind of sit in this, I guess the point I'm getting at here in a kind of a very long-winded way, they sit in this kind of sweet spot of being happy with where they are in their career, knowing that they can take some risk because they've got a, a, uh, a reputation behind them, but also that they have the respect of the people uh, so they can maybe push some of these change initiatives forward. Does that, does that make sense? I think so. I, I think, again, if we, if we think about the two different worlds we're in, right, one world is predictable and, you know, executable. And so what we want there is a chain of command and we want compliance. Uh, and so the middle manager has a role there to just drive compliance. I mean, if there is an efficient way to make a widget uh, and we know exactly how to do it and the human being in that system needs to contribute X percent per hour, there, that's one role of the middle manager. And I think a lot of people tend to think of the middle manager that way as just kind of like, and, and in that context, I'd agree with Peter Drucker that kind of says, well, you know, the information system can then just remove the middle manager because it's more of an information-based transactional job. Where, where things shift, I think, is when we are now in this VUCA world, you know, compounding complexity, and we're dealing with um, technology jerking humanity around, um, none of us is as smart as all of us. And I actually believe that the, the center leader, the leader who sits almost in the middle of the organization has the best sense, we call this sense-making, Carl Weick, of what, what, what the organization can achieve and may even have the best sense of who to involve in the conversations when we're trying to figure out something we haven't figured out before. Because they're closer. They're closer to the ground. They're closer to the people. They're closer to the culture. They understand. The second thing I would say is, when we move into more of that complex landscape, it's less about compliance to process and it's more about committing to principle. That, you know, a, a sense of purpose or shared aspiration is what guides you. And you're going to have many, many fits and starts and trials and errors along the way to find a progression path to the future. And it's not going to be a straight line. It's going to be quite, quite a you know, jagged line, if you will. And I really believe that center leaders are the ones that can kind of uh, contain, if you will, or absorb uh, the, the, the hits that we take as we find our way forward to a better future. And, and so for those reasons, I kind of think the middle manager has a clear role in the world of predictability. And it, to a certain extent, sometimes they could be taken out of that role because it's just an information transaction-based role. When we move into the world we're in today, this is where I believe <laughs> center leaders are not dinosaurs, they're dynamos, because everything revolves around them as we're trying to find our way forward to a better future you know, as an organization. They're closer to every every aspect, the strategy, the results, the culture, the people. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. That is, that is great, uh, great insight there. And again, uh, listeners, a big reason why you need to go pick up a copy of Everyday Superhero, How You Can Inspire Everyone and Create Real Change at Work by Tony O'Driscoll. Um, you know, and we, we didn't directly reference the book a lot in the beginning, but a lot of that stuff, as Tony mentioned, is research and statistics and stuff that you can find throughout the book and, and detailed more in the back. And again, I highly recommend that this is something that you pick up and, and, uh, and go through. Um, you know, Tony, we've been chatting here for a little over 40 minutes at this point here, and, and I feel like we probably got, you know, about four or five hours more in us, if not uh, <laughs> longer than that. Um but as we look to wrap things up here, I'm, I'm kind of curious, is there something that, uh, and I'm sure there's probably a lot here, but is there something that really uh, is burning you that we didn't get a chance to get to that you want to leave listeners with before we get out of here? Yeah, I'd just like to say the, 
the hard part of putting this book together was number one, building a narrative around it, which which that was important in order to make it accessible, like you said, Earl. But then also to kind of take the research and make it very actionable. So so for instance, each one of these elements, there's 10 elements. I'm just going to pick one. One of the elements is called act to think differently. And this is the new research in behavioral economics you referred to Dan Kahneman or earlier, Danny Kahneman. Um, the idea here is a lot of times we thought that we used to have to think our way into a new way of acting. We'd have to be convinced cognitively before we would kind of have agency to do it. Uh, what we're finding now, Hermania Ibarra is, is uh, probably the one who's done the most research in here, is that leaders who deliberately act their way into a new way of thinking are more successful in changing their own behavior and in motivating change behavior in others. So what's really important there is is kind of, okay, so that's the insight, right, that comes from the research is that if, if you just, if you want to change something, just change a little bit every day. We've, we've heard this, go to the gym for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and so on and so forth. Now, in order to do that, then the leadership system needs to shift. And, and, and the shifts that I talk about in the book, it's, I try to make them really simple. So if you're going to try and work on um, this element, act to think differently, one thing you should do is work on demonstrating change behavior over demanding change behavior. Because how you act speaks far more loudly than what you say, right? So, so what can I do today to demonstrate the change behavior I'm looking for rather than to demand it? What can I do today to be authentic and open over being authoritarian and overbearing? What can I do today to encourage trying and learning over thinking and planning? I'm not saying that demanding change behavior, being authoritarian and thinking and planning are not important. They're absolutely important, right? But as we went through the software revolution, we had to come to also want to stretch in an opposite direction so that we could create the room for the kind of generative learning we're talking about, which would be moving from demanding change behavior to demonstrating change behavior, being authoritarian and overbearing to being authentic and open, thinking and planning to trying and learning. So at the end of the book, there's kind of like a little journal where it says, hey, if you want to go on your own journey, figure out the area you'd like to work on first and foremost. And then see if you can act, you know, just enact these shifts on a daily basis. So trying to take the very esoteric down to super practical, what am I going to do on Tuesday morning? And every one of them set up that way, Earl. So I would say, you know, enjoy the comic uh, book, look at the research, but go to the very last page. There's literally kind of almost a, a, a daily plan for how, do, how might I shift my own behavior to create a leadership system that allows the organization to become more agile. Mm. I love that. Big fan of the whole uh, uh, Kaizen continual improvement for good, and and just those small changes as you just mentioned can make a uh, can make a huge difference in the future of an organization, in the future of your leadership journey, and in the future of those around you as you uh, influence these changes for the better. So I love that. It's a great uh, great bit to to leave folks with there, Tony. Um, they want to find out more about you, want to find out more about the book, what, what you can do to help them and their organization. What's a good place for them to, to find all that information out? Yeah, my website is complexsimple, C-O-M-P-L-E-X-I-M-P-L-E dot -E com. Uh, most of my writings up there, a number of interviews I've done, uh, links to the book. Uh, so that's basically where I keep all of the content that I've had over the last 20 years, try and keep it as fresh as possible. Fantastic. And listeners, as always, that information will get uh, linked in the show notes. You can just click on it and you can go straight there. Um, Tony, this has just been a fantastic conversation. I've learned a lot. Uh, I've really enjoyed your insight, your wisdom. Um, always go back to the old uh, Einstein quote that says, uh, uh, if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. 
And, and I think that uh, through the discussion today, through the way you put this uh, this complex information into a very simple, digestible format in the book and kept the kind of complex research stuff in there, uh, shows uh, everybody the, the grasp you really do have over this uh, this domain of knowledge. So thank you for being an outstanding guest today on the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I really appreciate having you on here and having this conversation with me and my listeners. Great pleasure, Earl. Really enjoyed it. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X dot com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid.